turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke uh, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. What we'll do now is we will read uh, Luke chapter 16 verses 1 uh, through 13 and then we will uh, pray and then we will look at God's Word uh, together. Uh, beloved, there are many in our, in our church who are just battling uh, physical illness. Uh, so I just want to make sure that you keep them in your prayers. Um, I'll pray for them, not to mention them all now, but I will pray for them. Just be, be uh, in prayer as we pursue uh, Christ together. Uh, it's a great thing knowing that God's people are being prayed for. Um, hear God's word from Luke chapter 16, starting the first verse. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that the man, this man, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking away the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you? Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you what? that which is your own. No servant can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. God, we rejoice in in your holiness. We rejoice in your love and your mercy. God, you are good. You are gracious. You are merciful. Your love endures forever. So God, we first stop and we praise your holy name. We praise the Lord. You are so good and kind to us. God, you are um, just good in who you are. And God, when we come in contact with your goodness, we are reminded of our evil, unbelieving hearts. God, even how this past week we have gone astray, that we have not used our resources wisely that we have not prepared for the life to come, how we have had our eyes fixed on our circumstances and our surroundings, how we have grumbled, how we have lacked trust, God, how we have been short with anger, not realizing how good you have been to us. So God, in the many sins that we have committed this past week, we fall again upon the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy and for forgiveness. God, we thank you that you who are faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us in all unrighteousness. So God, we pray that promise over us now. We pray that we would feel the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, that we know 
that our sins is as far as the east is from the west, God. Uh, We pray that we would continue to be purified, to be cleansed in righteousness. God, we pray for those in our congregation who are hurting physically. Uh, We lift up Judy Player to you, God. We lift up uh, Betty Folsom and Frank. We lift up Tommy Franks and Ted Carroll. God, we, we pray for those who are sick and shut in, who are not able to be with us. God, I pray that you would just minister to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we do pray for healing. God, that your healing would come, God, upon their life, upon their souls, Lord. God, I pray that in the midst of difficulty, that their hearts would, would be alive in you, that they would trust you, they would trust you and you alone, God, that they would bank their whole life on the resurrection, the life to come. God, we pray for the gospel uh, in our city. We pray that you would continue to give um, the gospel power in Rock Hill. We pray this morning for Joey Deese at Oakdale Baptist Church. God, we pray as he stands to preach your word this morning that you, you fill him with the power of your Holy Spirit. Help, let him preach with power, God. God, we pray people in that, in that church would be formed more into your likeness. We pray that those who, would be, who hear your word would not harden their hearts as in the rebellion, but God, that they would trust you, that they would not fall away from you. God, I pray now for uh, these people, the people that you have given me, God, and for this hour. God, I I am so humbled with the privilege of preaching your word. Uh, What a gift it is to us, Lord, again and again that you have told us to hear your voice. So, God, I pray that your voice would be heard today by your people. God, I pray for their hearts now. I pray their hearts would be softened, God, that they would hear your word with a ready obedience, God, ready to obey you, ready to listen. God, I pray that you would remove distractions from their minds, that they would focus on your glory, God. Let them hear your word. God, remind us again that we are listening to God speaking to us. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would preach through me, God. I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase. I pray that all that is said from my mouth is said to your glory, God. God, that your name would be lifted up. And God, I pray as your name is lifted up on high, that you are glorified, that you would draw men to yourself. So God, I pray that you would correct the sin in our lives. Um, Move us to be formed into the image of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, On June 4th, uh, 2014, Uh, Last month, members of a radical Islamist group, Boko Haram, posed as Christian ministers, uh, inviting the villagers to come and listen to them preach before they opened fire on the crowd, killing 45 people. Just two days prior, members of the same group disguised themselves as soldiers, uh, and they went to three different villages and slaughtered uh, 20, 200 Christians. Boko Haram has announced their goal that they want to eradicate Christianity from Africa, specifically in Nigeria. Now, brothers, we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. And although I would say it is extremely dangerous to be a Christian in Nigeria, I want to challenge you today that I think it is more dangerous to be a Christian in the United States of America than it is even in Nigeria. Listen to what one pastor, uh, Joseph Son from Romania, who endured much persecutions. Listen to what he says um, about the great test of faith. He says this, 90% of Christians will pass the test 
of adversity. While 90% of Christians fail the test of prosperity. America is not one of the most dangerous places physically, but it is one of the most dangerous places spiritually. If our lives are taken for being a Christian, we are in glory. We are in the presence of God. As Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and death is gain. Death is gain, beloved. We should pray for our brothers and sisters facing death in all parts of the world. And although their lives might be in physical danger, we need to be aware of the ever-present spiritual dangers in our own lives. Because spiritual danger, hear me now, will always be greater than physical danger. Spiritual danger will always be greater than physical danger. Because the consequences last longer. Eternity awaits. God says in his word that it is appointed for a man to die once and then face judgment. We will all go and stand before God in judgment. Our souls are in spiritual danger because of our prosperity, because of our wealth. America is one of the wealthiest nations in the history of the world. And our wealth and our country's love of wealth poses a serious danger for our souls. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, only with difficult will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And again, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul says these words. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Beloved, we are under constant attack with the love of money. So how does our country, how does our culture train us to love money? Let me just offer you a few ways. Uh, one of the ways is, is advertising and marketing. Isn't, that, isn't the whole efforts to appeal to your desires? To have you seek that which would make you more happy and more comfortable? Whether it's a new speaker system, a 3D, flat screen TV, new furniture, a new lawn care equipment. They are appealing to your desires to get more. And if you want more, guess what you also need? You need more money. Advertisers want you to spend your money, and if you spend your money, you can easily crave more money. Live today, they say. Or what about social media? Social media gives an outlet for a place where we are tempted to covet, covet and desire the kind of lives that our friends have, and allows us to focus on more on this world than the world to come, or even education in our country. The mantra in modern-day education is to work hard in school so you can go to a good college, so you can get a good job and, and provide a good life for your family. It's about wealth. Or even celebrities. What, what, is, what is newsworthy? 
It's sad when you turn on the television, you see what they say is newsworthy as celebrities. What happened to this person and that person? What they're doing is they're, they're subtly showing you that if you want to be successful or have a life worth living, you've got to be famous and wealthy. There are other ways we can, that our culture encourages us to pursue riches. But those who fall, desire to be rich, hear me, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many harmful desires, into ruin and destruction. Do you see the grave danger it is to be a Christian in America? And not even a Christian, but if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, this world tells you to live now, to live for today, live for your own glory now. People don't know their need for Christ because of their wealth. Our country's love of riches is a danger for our souls. So I pray this morning we take heed Hebrews 3.12 says that there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. I want to encourage you this morning to have a proper perspective of wealth, that you would use your wealth for the glory of God. Now, let me just say this right at the outset. Some of you may say, well, I don't have wealth. (laughs) So this is probably for somebody else. Uh, Do you have more than one pair of shoes? If you do, you are 98% more wealthy than the rest of the world. We take for granted how much we have. So Jesus encouraged us in this text to practice a shrewd stewardship. Shrewd stewardship. So we're going to look at two examples of a shrewd stewardship. The first, shrewd stewardship for an earthly wealth. Shrewd stewardship for earthly wealth. Look at these examples. Luke 16.1 again. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who held a, had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, first thing I want you to notice how the audience changes. He's no longer speaking to the Pharisees as he did in Luke 15. Now he's speaking directly to the disciples. You know, in this previous story, the, the, Luke chapter 15, we looked at last week, the son was wasting his possession. He was living for the world. And here we see a manager who is wasting possessions. So the response of this rich man is to believe the charges. Look at what he says in verse 2. And he, the rich man, called him and said to him, what is this I hear about? Hear about you. Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. It didn't look like he, he was researching the details. He assumed that the charges were true. So the, the manager is called to the carpet and given his notice. Now this poses a problem for the manager. What am I to do? Uh, many of you have, 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 have if, if ever experienced that idea of being, of being let go from your job, of being fired. When that notice comes down, you have to say, what now? What am I going to do? How am I going to feed my family? Those are very real questions. So at this point of the story, we don't see anything about immorality or dishonesty in the manager. It just says he was squandering or wasting the possessions. It could be as a result of dishonesty, or it could just simply be neglect or incompetency. We don't know, but we do know that his reason when he starts thinking about his future. He has this, this inner monologue, this soliloquy. Look what it says in verse 3, a window inside his head. He says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. You know, if he was a, um, one who's in charge of 
resources, he probably lived a very comfortable life. And the thought of going back to, 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 to manual labor would have been shameful to him. He didn't want to go back to what he used to do. Uh, but he, was, didn't want to, he, wasn't, he wasn't strong enough to dig, and he, wasn't, he was too proud to beg. Look what it says in verses 4 through 8. I have decided what to do. So that I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly. I think that's a key point of the text. Sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do we owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to them, Take, our, take out your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, to be honest, when I first read this text, there was was a lot of questions. This question raises a lot of uh, challenges to us. In what ways was the manager dishonest? Does the master praise dishonesty? What was taken off the bill to the debtors? Now, honestly, we could camp on this passage for weeks. Um, But let me just address a few things briefly. You know, first question, what was taken off the bill? Some scholars believe that he he removed uh, his his, his own compensation. So as a manager, he would have been paid for managing the account. Some say he removed his own compensation. Others say that he he removed an exorbitant interest that the the rich man was uh, um, applying to these folks coming in, 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 in line with um, the law specified in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. Others simply said he cut the debt. He, you owed 100, now you owe 80. You owe 100, now you owe 50. Uh, costing the rich man money so that he would be thought well of by the debtors. It's all speculation. You know, text does not make it clear why he cut the money. Uh, the te- oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't make, doesn't make it clear what he took off for the, the, the specific reason. But the, does, the, the text does make it clear that it was ta- he took off the debt um, for himself. He was taken, the debt was taken off so that the manager would gain favor with the debtors so that the debtors would receive him into their house because he didn't want to work. He didn't want to physically work digging, digging. He did not want to beg for food. So regardless of what was removed, we know that why he removed it was dishonest. That's why he was said, you are dishonest. He commended the dishonest manager. But was he commending his dishonesty? This is, this is important for us. You know, I, I don't think he, he was. I mean, we know the character of Jesus. Jesus would not uh, commend someone for being dishonest. But what he did commend him for, for his shrewdness. You see right there at the end of verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, to be shrewd is to have or show the ability to understand things and to make good judgments. Now, this man made good judgments for his own future. Not overall a good judgment, but a good judgment for his own immediate future. That's why Jesus summarizes this parable at the end of, chapter, end of verse 8, when he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The point is that this man exercised a shrewd stewardship for an earthly wealth. He dealt wisely as a son of this world in preparing for his future while being dismissed as a manager. 
Now, he is not praised for his dishonesty, but he is praised for taking action to prepare for his future. Now, the, the, the idea here that Jesus says, the sons of this world, those would be referring to those who are, who are not followers of God, those who would be uh, unbelievers, that they dealt more shrewdly in preparing for their future than the sons of light. Now, the sons of light is referring to us. It's referring to believers. Our eyes have been opened. We have seen the light. So this passage is not saying if people of this world are preparing for their earthly wealth, then we should be preparing for our earthly wealth. No, that's not the the idea of the text. If, If people of this world are preparing for their earthly wealth, then God's people, God's people should be preparing for their eternal wealth which is our second point. The second example of a shrewd stewardship is shrewd stewardship for eternal wealth. For eternal wealth. Jesus here is rebuking his disciples because they're not preparing for their future. Now, he's not talking about their earthly future. We think about that too often. We have to prepare for retirement. We have to prepare for when I, when, I, when I graduate high school. We have to prepare for when I have children. We have to prepare for this, 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 this future on earth. What the text is saying is that we need to prepare for eternal future, our eternal wealth. We are too focused on this world. And if we focus on this world, we are not living for the age to come. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If the dead are not raised... If there is no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, listen, if there is no resurrection, we should live the best life we want now. Now, I think that there's there's, there's someone who who says that our best life is now. The Bible would say that that is heresy. Your best life is not now. Your best life is then, in future, in God's eternal presence. So anything that reminds you and says live your best life now is living, telling you to live as if the resurrection did not happen. The Bible would call you a heretic. Can I just say that? Be careful who you listen to. What are they telling you? The manager lived for his pleasure because he could avoid digging and begging. He was preparing for earthly pleasure but he did not understand eternal pleasure. God does not want your heart focused on this world. One thing that I want to do every time I preach is I want you to lift your eyes off of this world. Lift your eyes off of yourself unto God. That's why at the beginning of every service, we stop and we have a silent reflection. Why? Why do I do that? Why do we have that time of meditation? So you could get your eyes off of yourself. We don't come here primarily for you. We come here for God. to to glorify God, to give Him praise. So we have to correct ourselves every single week because everything in this world says, it's about you. It's about you. It's about you. The Bible says it's not about you, it's about God. Listen. Now he's specifically speaking about our money here. Listen to Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, God wants us to treasure, to treasure him. And here, isn't he worth it? Isn't God worth being our supreme treasure in our life? I mean, he's so glorious and holy and righteous. All that God is, is good. God knows no evil. He is all good, perfect in character, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. See, he created the world very good. And he created man in his own image. And after he looked at all that he made, he said, this is very good. And what happened? Man rebelled, sinned against God's goodness, and spurned him by saying, you are not worthy of being our supreme treasure. You know, every time we sin, what we're really saying is that we don't count God worthy of our supreme devotion. When we listen to the voices inside our head and we listen to this world, what we're saying is that, God, you are not worthy. But he is worthy. If God would have executed justice on Adam after he sinned and cast him into eternal hell, God still would have been good because God knows no evil. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were deserving to be crushed for our sin, he sent Christ to be crushed for us, to to, to take our sin on the cross. See, God hates sin. That's why he demonstrated that how much he hates sin by crucifying his own son. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt the wrath of God, this separation from his father. He died in our place. He was forsaken so that we would be accepted. And now he's given us hope. Because he didn't just die, he rose from the dead, giving everyone hope for the resurrection. So if, if we live for today, and we live to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, what we are saying is that Jesus Christ did not need to die. He wasn't raised from the dead. It is a lie from the pit of hell. You are one day going to stand before God as your holy judge. And the only hope you have then is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You see, he's given us a living hope because of that resurrection from the dead. So now through faith, he rescues us from hell. He rescues us from condemnation and judgment and gives us the hope of heaven. And really what he's doing is he's saying, you are my treasured possession. See, we can treasure God as supreme because he's treasured us as his precious possession. Listen to what Deuteronomy 7, 6 says. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. See, God wants us to treasure him. See, but God wants more than us just to treasure him. He wants us to treasure the things that he treasures. I just find it interesting in this passage. Take your Bibles with me and just look at the end of chapter 14. Look at the end of of verse Chapter 14, verse 33 in Luke. It says, um, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's talking about your possessions, your wealth, what you own. 
When we become believers, we say, what I have is no longer mine, it belongs to God. So then we see in Luke chapter 15, the, 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 the audience changes from the tax collectors and, and the sinners. And what is he really trying to say there? Love the lost. God treasures the lost. That's why he sent his son, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And then we get back to, to, to Luke 16, and then it says, and he said to his disciples. So he changes the audience again. What he's trying to say here, he said, listen, if you are going to have God's heart, you have to love the lost. And if you're going to love the lost, guess what? You have to be willing to give your resources, your money, that the lost may be found. Now, here's, the, here's, the, here's one of the greatest challenges of our day, is that we are taught to hold on to our money. Provide for ourselves now. And I honestly believe that the American West is squandering, is wasting our possessions when the world is in desperate need of the gospel. We don't understand what it means, what God is asking his people to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We have to get out of our American context. Listen to what one um, pastor shares from Stanford Kelly about a Haitian man named Edmund. I quote, the church was having a Thanksgiving festival and each Christian was invited to bring a love offering. Uh, One envelope from a Haitian man named Edmund held $13 cash. Now, if I were to ask some of you, hey, listen, I really need you to get $13. Most of you could probably come up with it very easy. But listen to what he says here. See, that amount was three months income for a working man there. Kelly was as surprised as those counting a Sunday offering in the United States might be able to see a $6,000 cash gift. He looked around for Edmund, but he couldn't see him. Uh, Later, Kelly met him in a village, and he questioned him, asking him why he hadn't come to the festival. He pressed him for an explanation and found that Edmund had sold his horse in order to give those $13 as a gift to God for the sake of the gospel. But why hadn't he come to the festival? Edmund hesitated, didn't want to answer. He looked him in the eye and he said, I had no shirt to wear. He's willing to sell his horse, his means of transportation, right? He's willing to give all of it for the cause of Christ. He wouldn't even go to the festival because he didn't own a shirt. And how much do we have where we are just squandering our possessions? You know, I've, I've been looking at my life this week, been looking around my home, the things I have, and man, we've been blessed. We have so much stuff. And not all stuff is bad. You know, I, I like having a suit. You know, I like having a, a couch. That's, that's, that's fine. But am I willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Or am I squandering my possessions? my wealth on earthly comforts when eternal glory awaits. I pray that we would be the kind of church that would care so much about eternity, that cares so much about the resurrection, that we would have the heart of Edmund. Even if I don't have a shirt, I'm willing to give for the cause of Christ because that's what God wants of you. He wants you to treasure him and treasure what he values. He values the law, so will we give for the glory of God? That's what he wants. 
That's why I think this passage is here. Now, I'm not talking about even our tithe. Now, if you're not tithing, you need to repent and at least give God the, the, your 10%. Because the 10% is a minimum. And God's people should never live in the minimum. I'm talking about every single dollar that I own. 100% is God's. Not 90. Not 10. 100% belongs to God. And Jesus says, if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. All the money belongs to him. So let me just make these points as we close. Therefore, right, because we want to have this shrewd stewardship, how do we practice this shrewd stewardship? We do it in three ways. First, we, we are generous. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. When Jesus says, I tell you, listen, because he's going to say something extremely important. That could be very confusing that, Confusing there. The idea of make friends is a circumlocution for God. It's referring to God there because when money fails, and it will, we know that from Proverbs eleven twenty eight, 28, uh, that those who uh, trust in, in his riches will fall. The righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So the only way is that we use our unrighteous wealth, not, the, not that all wealth is bad, but that it is collected. It's very tied to this world. It's used for worldly things. We, we live and use our wealth in such a way to honor and please God so that when our wealth runs out, when we breathe our last, God will welcome us in to his eternal dwellings. Worldly wealth will fail. It will not last. So the children of light whose eyes have been opened must practice shrewd stewardship. We invest our money that can never be taken from us. That's the whole point of that idea of, 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 of storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. See, when Edmund gave those $13, he didn't lose it. He sent it ahead to heaven, storing up for himself treasures in heaven. We'll look at this again in the following week. We'll look at the, the, the end of this chapter, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus. The next thing we want to do is we want to be faithful. Be faithful. Look at verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a, in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, the question is not how much money you have. The question is, how we handle the money we do have. If you're faithful with little, you will be faithful with much. If you squander a little, you will squander much. God wants us to focus on how we handle our money. What we do with little is an indication of what we'll do with much. So the question is, I ask you today, are you faithful with what God has given you? Are you faithful with what God has given you? And if you say, no, I'm, I haven't been faithful. If you have not been faithful with little, how can God entrust you with true riches? See, now the principle transcends money. It's not just about money, it's about stewardship. Are we faithful with everything the Lord has given us? Are you faithful with your family, with your children? Are you faithful with your time? Are you faithful with your body? Are you faithful 
with what God has given you. If we're faithful with the things we, do on, we get on earth, we will be entrusted with true riches by our God in heaven. Do you see how everything is wrapped around the resurrection? That if you lose the resurrection and we live to, to have the greatest life we can right now, how it goes against everything in the New Testament. The Bible says be willing to suffer. Suffer all things so that others may know Christ. Even Paul says, I, I would rather have me be accursed and set apart from Christ that my kinsmen would know Jesus. I just don't think we're really willing to suffer. The last thing that God calls us to is to be a wise servant, to be a wise servant. Look at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Beloved, money, how you handle your money, is a barometer of your spiritual health. The reason America is so dangerous because our culture encourages you to live for today rather than for eternity, for yourself rather than for God. Who is your master? Who are you serving? Not who should you be serving, but who are you serving? One of the things that I, I know I need to do with, my, with myself and my own income is I need to look at what I'm spending. And I have to look at, do my priorities match up with my faith? And you know, if I can be completely honest with you this morning, I don't want to. I don't want to. Because I think I'm going to find that my, my belief in Christ does not match my checkbook. What does your spending say? Is your money serving God or are you serving your money? Remember what that Romanian Joseph Sahn said. 90% of Christians pass the test of adversity, while 90% of Christians fail the test of prosperity. Beloved, many Christians are failing the test. We need to take an honest look at our budgets, of our spending both as individuals and as a church. Beloved, do not fail the test of prosperity. Practice shrewd stewardship. Use your wealth to prepare for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of church, that we would be the kind of people who live for eternity, that we would base everything on the resurrection of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.